The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Horror Hill is brought to you by Best Fiends the critically acclaimed puzzle-based adventure game, available for download now on your mobile device of choice, and by BetterHelp, the world's largest e-counseling platform, dedicated to ensuring that anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I'll tell you a bit more about our sponsors later on tonight. Until then, double-check your doors and windows and settle in. Darkness is at your door, and it can't wait to join you. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener. To the horror hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun, and nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself if you dare. Come inch a little closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more your searches through. 
You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness <laughs> has found you. <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Horror Hill. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 10. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. In today's episode, we bring you three bone-chilling tales from the public domain and breathe new life into legendary stories from the likes of Gertrude Atherton, Richard Connell, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Tonight's tales may be time-worn, but they're also timeless. And in today's troubling times, it's nice to see that many of the same things that haunt us now scared our ancestors too. I suppose some things never change. Whether or not that's a good thing, I'll leave up to you to decide. <laughs> You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to the place where the sun dies, and nightmares come to life, where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us from author Gertrude Atherton and was first published 124 years ago in 1896 under the title The Twins. After improving the story, Atherton renamed the story and republished it in 1905 in her collection of tales entitled The Bell in the Fog. If you enjoy tonight's tale and you would like to hear more, you can find the entire book online on Project Gutenberg and archived on some other websites. In the tale, a group of aristocrats are enjoying a leisurely vacation at the start of bird hunting season until young Wyatt Gifford wanders off alone into the wilderness at night and disappears, leaving his friends to forego hunting game so they can hunt for him. Without further ado, from author Gertrude Atherton, I present to you The Striding Place. Weigel, continental and detached, tired early of grouse shooting. To stand propped against a sod fence while his host's workmen routed up the birds with long poles and drove them towards the waiting guns made him feel himself a parody on the ancestors who had roamed the moors and forests of this west riding of Yorkshire 
in hot pursuit of game worth the killing. But when in England in August he always accepted whatever proffered for the season, and invited his host to shoot pheasants on his estates in the south, the amusements of life, he argued, should be accepted with the same philosophy as its ills. It had been a bad day. The heavy rain had made the moor so spongy that it fairly sprang beneath the feet. Whether or not the grouse had haunts of their own, wherein they were immune from rheumatism, the bag had been small. The women, too, were an unusually dull lot, with the exception of a new-minded debutante who bothered Weigel at dinner by demanding the verbal restoration of the vague paintings and the vaulted roof above them. But it was no one of these things that sat on Weigel's mind as, when the other men went up to bed, he let himself out of the castle and sauntered down to the river. His intimate friend, the companion of his boyhood, the chum of his college days, his fellow traveler in many lands, the man for whom he possessed stronger affection than for all men, had mysteriously disappeared two days ago, and his track might have sprung to the upper air for all trace he had left behind him. He had been a guest on the adjoining estate during the past week, shooting with the fervor of a true sportsman, making love in the intervals to Adeline Cavan, and apparently in the best of spirits. As far as was known, there was nothing to lower his mental mercury, for his rent roll was a large one. Miss Cavan blushed whenever he looked at her, and, being one of the best shots in England, he was never happier than in August. The suicide theory was preposterous, all agreed, and there was as little reason to believe him murdered. Nevertheless, he had walked out of March Abbey two nights ago without hat or overcoat, and had not been seen since. The country was being patrolled night and day. A hundred keepers and workmen were beating the woods and poking the bogs on the moors, but as of yet not so much as a handkerchief had been found. Weigel did not believe for a moment that Wyatt Gifford was dead, and although it was impossible not to be affected by the general uneasiness, he was disposed to be more angry than frightened. At Cambridge, Gifford had been an incorrigible practical joker, and by no means had outgrown the habit. It would be like him to cut across the country in his evening clothes, board a cattle train and amuse himself, touching up the picture of the sensation in West Riding. However, Weigel's affection for his friend was too deep to companion with tranquility in the present state of doubt, and, instead of going to bed early with the other men, he determined to walk until ready for sleep. He went down to the river and followed the path through the woods. There was no moon, but the stars sprinkled their cold light upon the pretty belt of water, flowing placidly past wood and ruin between green masses of overhanging rocks or sloping banks tangled with tree and shrub, leaping occasionally over stones with the harsh notes of an angry scold, to recover its equanimity the moment the way was clear again. It was very dark in the depths where Weigel trod. He smiled as he recalled a remark of Gifford's. An English ward is like a good many other things in life, very promising at a distance, but a hollow mockery when you get within. You see daylight on both sides, and the sun freckles the very bracken. Our woods need the night to make them seem what they ought to be, what they once were, before our ancestors' descendants demanded so much more money. 
in these so much more various days. Weigel strolled along, smoking and thinking of his friend, his pranks, many of which had done more credit to his imagination than this, and recalling conversations that had lasted the night through. Just before the end of the London season, they had walked the streets one hot night after a party, discussing the various theories of the soul's destiny. That afternoon, they had met at the coffin of a college friend whose mind had been a blank for the past three years. Some months previously, they had called at the asylum to see him. His expression had been senile, his face imprinted with a record of debauchery. In death, the face was placid, intelligent, without ignoble lineation. The face of a man they had known at college. Weigel and Gifford had had no time to comment there, and the afternoon and evening were full. But, coming forth from the house of festivity together, they had reverted almost at once to the topic. I cherish the theory, Gifford had said, that the soul sometimes lingers in the body after death. During madness, of course, it is an impotent prisoner, albeit a conscious one. Fancy its agony and its horror. What more natural than that, when the life spark goes out, the tortured soul should take possession of the vacant skull and triumph once more for a few hours while old friends look their last. It has had time to repent while compelled to crouch and behold the result of its work, and it has shrived itself into a state of comparative purity. If I had my way, I should stay inside my bones until the coffin had gone into its niche, that I might obviate for my poor old comrade the tragic impersonality of death. And I should like to see justice done to it, as it were, to see it lowered among its ancestors with the ceremony and solemnity that are its due. I am afraid that I have dissevered myself too quickly. I should yield to curiosity and hasten to investigate the mysteries of space. You believe in the soul as an independent entity, then? That it and the vital principle are not one and the same? Absolutely. The body and soul are twins, life comrades, sometimes friends, sometimes enemies, but always loyal in the last instance. Some day, when I am tired of the world, I shall go to India and become a Mahatma solely for the pleasure of receiving proof during life of this independent relationship. <laughs> Suppose you are not sealed up properly and returned after one of your astral flights to find your earthly part unfit for habitation? It is an experiment I don't think I should care to try, unless even juggling with soul and flesh had palled. That would not be an uninteresting predicament. I should rather enjoy experimenting with broken machinery. The high, wild roar of water smote suddenly upon Weigel's ear and checked his memories. He left the wood and walked out on the huge, slippery stones which nearly closed the river wharf at this point, and watched the waters boil down into the narrow pass with their furious, untiring energy. The black quiet of the woods rose high on either side. The stars seemed colder and whiter just above. On either hand, the perspective of the river might have run into a rayless cavern. There was no lonelier spot in England, nor one which had the right to claim so many ghosts, if ghosts there were. Weigel was not a coward, but he recalled uncomfortably the tales of those that had been done to death in the stride. 
Wordsworth's boy of Egremont had been disposed of by the practical Whitaker, but countless others, more venturesome than wise, had gone down into that narrow, boiling course, never to appear in the still pool a few yards beyond. Below the great rocks which formed the walls of the stride was believed to be a natural vault onto whose shelves the dead were drawn. The spot had an ugly fascination. Weigel stood, visioning skeletons, uncoffined and green, the home of the eyeless things, which had devoured all that had covered and filled that rattling symbol of man's mortality. Then fell to wondering if anyone had attempted to leap the stride of late. It was covered with slime. He had never seen it look so treacherous. He shuddered and turned away, impelled, despite his manhood, to flee the spot. As he did so, something tossing in the foam below the fall, something as white yet independent of it, caught his eye and arrested his stem. Then he saw that it was describing a contrary motion to the rushing water, an upward-backward motion. Weigall stood rigid, breathless. He fancied he heard the crackling of his hair. Was that a hand? It thrust itself still higher, above the boiling foam, turned sideways, and four frantic fingers were distinctly visible against the black rock beyond. Weigel's superstitious terror left him. A man was there, struggling to free himself from the suction beneath the stride, swept down doubtless but a moment before his arrival, perhaps as he stood with his back to the current. He stepped as close to the edge as he dared. The hand doubled as if in imprecation, shaking savagely in the face of that force which leaves its creatures to immutable law, then spread wide again, clutching, expanding, crying for help as audibly as the human voice. Weigall dashed to the nearest tree, dragged and twisted off a branch with his strong arms and returned as swiftly to the stride. The hand was in the same place, still gesticulating as wildly, the body was undoubtedly caught in the rocks below, perhaps already halfway along one of those hideous shelves. Weigall let himself down upon a lower rock, braced his shoulder against the mass beside him, then, leaning out over the water, thrust the branch into the hand. The fingers clutched it convulsively. Weigall tugged powerfully, his own feet dragged perilously near the edge. For a moment... He produced no impression. Then, an arm shot above the waters. The blood sprang to Weigall's head. He was choked with the impression that the stride had him in her roaring hold, and he saw nothing. Then, the mist cleared. The hand and arm were nearer, although the rest of the body was still concealed by the foam. Weigall peered out with distended eyes. The meager light revealed in the cuffs links of a peculiar device. The fingers clutching the branch were as familiar. Weigel forgot the slippery stones, the terrible death if he stepped too far. He pulled with passionate will and muscle. Memories flung themselves into the hot light of his brain, trooping rapidly upon each other's heels as in the thought of the drowning. 
most of the pleasures of his life, good and bad, were identified in some way with this friend. Scenes of college days, of travel, where they had deliberately sought adventure and stood between one another and death upon more occasions than one, of hours of delight, companionship among the treasures of art, and others in the pursuit of pleasure, flashed like the changing particles of a kaleidoscope. Weigall had loved several women, but he would have flouted in these moments the thoughts that he had ever loved any woman as he loved Wyatt Gifford. There were so many charming women in the world, and in the thirty-two years of his life, he had never known another man to whom he had cared to give his intimate friendship. He threw himself on his face, his wrists were cracking, the skin was torn from his hands. The fingers still gripped the stick. There was life in them yet. Suddenly, something gave way. The hand swung about, tearing the branch from Weigel's grasp. The body had been liberated and flung outward, though still submerged by the foam and spray. Weigel scrambled to his feet and sprang along the rocks, knowing that the danger from suction was over and that Gifford must be carried straight to the quiet pool. Gifford was a fish in the water and could live under it longer than most men. If he survived this, it would not be the first time that his pluck and science had saved him from drowning. Weigall reached the pool. A man in his evening clothes floated on it. His face turned towards a projecting rock over which his arm had fallen, upholding the body. The hand that had held the branch hung limply over the rock, its white reflection visible in the black water. Weigall plunged into the shallow pool, lifted Gifford in his arms and returned to the bank. He laid the body down and threw off his coat that he might be the freer to practice the methods of resuscitation. He was glad of the moment's respite. The valiant life in the man might have been exhausted in that last struggle. He had not dared to look at his face, to put his ear to the heart. The hesitation lasted but a moment. There was no time to lose. He turned to his prostrate friend. As he did so, something strange and disagreeable smote his senses. For a half moment, he did not appreciate its nature. Then, his teeth clacked together, his feet, his outstretched arms pointed towards the woods. But he sprang to the side of the man and bent down and peered into his face. There was no face. You've been listening to The Striding Place by author Gertrude Atherton as performed by yours truly. Do you know what the creepiest thing about that story is? It's based on reality. That's right. The Stride is a real place. Go ahead, Google it. The Bolton Stride, located in the rural UK, appears to the unsuspecting traveler to be nothing more than a picturesque country creek. Burbling along among moss-covered stones in a wooded stretch of Yorkshire, England. But, in actuality, it's a deadly waterway that, even though its banks are just six feet apart, 
has dragged down everyone who ever set foot in it. No one that has fallen into the river's rushing waters has lived to tell about it. Now, who wants to go on a little hike with me and check it out in person? It'll be fun. We'll make a day trip out of it and take turns jumping across. <laughs> you can go first. <laughs> Up next, I've got a second round of unforgettable fiction for you. This one, a classic from author Richard Connell, first published in Collier's Magazine in 1924, and later adapted into a 1932 feature-length film of the same name. In it, we'll find ourselves in the woods yet again. But this time, our threat is anything but natural. When a big-game hunter from New York goes overboard while at sea and is forced to swim to a seemingly abandoned island to survive, he'll soon discover he's got far more to fear than starvation and the elements. And he may not be alone after all. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's first sponsor, Best Fiends. The unique and exciting puzzle experience unlike other puzzle games out there. As you've probably figured out by now, horror fiction is my passion. But even I need the occasional break from the terrifying and the traumatic every now and then. So, when I feel like I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. There's a good chance that you've probably already heard about Best Fiends, and if you're not already playing, there's a good chance someone you know is. With 100 million global downloads and counting, a 5-star average on Apple and Google's app stores, and close to 2 million people playing every day, there's a good chance you'll love it too. Whether you're a regular gamer or a casual player looking for something to help wind down in your off hours, you'll find something to love about Best Fiends. With its addictive, challenging puzzles, you won't have a dull moment for months. I also happen to know that you enjoy a good story. You are listening to Horror Hill, after all. <laughs> and Best Fiends doesn't disappoint. Trust me when I tell you, it's more than just a game. It's an entire world, with its own backstory, characters, and plot just waiting to be explored and experienced. It's a tale fit for this very program, even if the idea of insect protagonists battling mutated slugs seems a bit off the wall at first. Truly, it's a classic tale of good versus evil, with the underdogs putting everything on the line, and when you download the app and start playing, you're doing more than collecting characters, leveling them up and discovering their special powers you're becoming a part of the story itself. And each of the over 2,000 levels in the game sucks you further into the action. The game was designed so that literally anyone can play, but it's intended for adults looking for a challenge and designed to engage your brain in ways the others don't. It looks and feels just like a standard puzzle game, and the first few levels are relatively easy. But after you advance you'll learn just how immersive the world of Best Fiends really is, and how much there's left to achieve. 
With new, limited, time special events and themes each and every month, thousands of levels and new characters, each with their own personalities and attributes added regularly, there's always something new to experience in the world of Minutia, and plenty of reasons to pick the game back up. Not only that, but you can stop and come back anytime without losing your progress. And thank goodness it does not require an internet connection to play, as any seasoned gamer can tell you how unbelievably irksome that can be, so you don't need to worry about Wi-Fi access or using your valuable cell data. Plus, you'll never be forced to compete directly against anyone else, but can always share your progress and achievements as a badge of honor, and have some friendly fun with friends and family, seeing who can get the farthest the fastest. Best Fiends treats the game like a service for their players, and it shows. As a professional voice actor, I spend many, many grueling hours a week reviewing previously recorded content for flaws, pops, clicks, etc., and nothing makes that time go faster than being to pick up a game and blunt the boredom and repetition of that process. And with the easy pick-up-put-down interface of Best Fiends, the hours, and I do mean hours, just fly by and usually leaving me not wanting to put the game down even when I'm done editing. The eye-catching bright colors, endearing character designs, and upbeat music keep the gameplay fresh and invigorating even through extended playthroughs, and are surprisingly relaxing for my eyes, especially after full eight-hour days of reading for narrations. As a perfectionist gamer from even back in the Sega Genesis days, I am a huge sucker for hidden characters and unlockables, and whoa, does this game have that. So much so that you'll keep forgetting to go to the new levels because you keep going back to perfect the old levels. And then, when you remember that you have new levels to go to, well, it'll keep you busy to say the least. And it's just good anywhere. Take it outside, go to the woods, go to the park. Playing Best Fiends outside in the sun with the fresh air is a great way to enjoy the outdoors, especially during this trying time of ours and a way to feel connected to people, even during this period of social distancing. And that's the other thing. It's not just a game, it's a community. And let me tell you, it gets hard quick. Level 10, level 11, level 12, you will spend ages trying to get through those. And when you do, maybe you'll want to show off a little, show everyone how good you are. And if you're still struggling, get some advice. Engage the community. Make a friend or two. Commiserate motivate each other. Show the world that social media can be used for something other than being digitally yelled at. Show the internet that it can be a source of love, not of hate. That through playing best fiends, we can be brought together, overcoming challenges as one instead of falling as many. Like so many leaves, used to remove evil black slugs from your path. Or... Just play it offline, enjoy some contemplative solitude, draw a hot bath, light some candles, engage in self-care. Best Fiends is pretty damn fun, either way. And don't be afraid to start small and take your time with it. Working on clearing the board by removing logs and twigs blocking the way is downright therapeutic. And working to collect diamonds and go for the longest possible matches gives a real sense of achievement. And just when you think you've mastered it, the game will throw you a curveball you never saw coming. 
reminding you that the best games are easy to learn and difficult to master. So, what are you waiting for? Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Thanks so much for your time, and for giving Best Fiends a try this month. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Now that I've given you the gift that keeps on giving, courtesy of Best Fiends, allow me to regale you with tonight's second tale... A story of a very different game, in which we just might discover that nature, while brutal and unforgiving, is nothing compared to the capabilities of men with far too much time on their hands. Without further ado, from author Richard Connell, I present to you The Most Dangerous Game. Off there, to the right somewhere, is a large island, said Whitney. It's rather a mystery. What island is it? Rainsford asked. The old charts call it Ship Trap Island, Whitney replied. A suggestive name, isn't it? Sailors have a curious dread of the place. I don't know why. Some superstition. Can't see it, remarked Rainsford, trying to peer through the dank tropical night. You've good eyes, said Whitney with a laugh, and I've seen you pick off a moose moving in the brown fall bush at four hundred yards, but even you can't see four miles or so through a moonless Caribbean night. Nor four yards, admitted Rainsford. It'll be light enough in Rio, promised Whitney. We should make it in a few days. I hope the jaguar guns have arrived. We should have some good hunting of the Amazon. Great sport hunting. The best sport in the world. "'agreed Rainsford. "'For the hunter,' amended Whitney. 
not for the animal. Don't talk nonsense, Whitney, said Rainsford. You're a big game hunter, not a philosopher. Who cares how an animal feels? Perhaps the animal does, observed Whitney. <laughs> They've no understanding. Even so, I rather think they understand one thing. Fear. Fear of pain and fear of death. Nonsense, laughed Rainsford. This hot weather's making you soft, Whitney. Be a realist. The world is made up of two classes. The hunters and the huntees. Luckily, you and I are hunters. Do you think we've passed that island yet? I can't tell in the dark. I hope so. Why? asked Rainsford. Place has a reputation. A bad one. Cannibals? suggested Rainsford. Hardly. Even cannibals wouldn't live in such a godforsaken place. But it has gotten into sailor lore somehow. Didn't you notice the crew's nerves seemed a bit jumpy today? They were a bit strange now that you mention it. Even Captain Nielsen. Yes. Even that tough-minded old Swede who'd go up to the devil himself and ask him for a light. Those fishy blue eyes held a look I never saw there before. All I could get out of him was that this place has an evil name among seafaring men. Then he said to me, very gravely, Don't you feel anything? As if the air about us was actually poisonous. Now, you mustn't laugh when I tell you this. I did feel something like a sudden chill. There was no breeze. The sea was as flat as a plate-glass window. We were drawing near the island then. What I felt was a mental chill, sort of sudden dread. Pure imagination, said Rainsford. One superstitious sailor can taint the whole ship's company with his fear. Maybe. But sometimes I think an evil place can, so to speak, broadcast vibrations of evil. Anyhow, I'm glad we're getting out of this zone. Well, I think I'll turn in now, Rainsford. I'm not sleepy, said Rainsford. I'm going to smoke another pipe up on the after deck. Well, good night then, Rainsford. See you at breakfast. Right. Good night, Whitney. There was no sound in the night as Rainsford sat there but the muffled throb of the engine that drove the yacht swiftly through the darkness and the swish and ripple of the wash of the propeller. Rainsford, reclining in a steamer chair, indolently puffed on his favorite pipe. From across the water he heard a strange sound. Somewhere, off in the darkness, someone had fired a gun three times. He went to the rail and leaned over. At the same moment the boat turned. Rainsford lost his balance and fell into the water. The ship was speeding out of sight. Nobody knew what had happened to Rainsford. He began to swim in the direction where the shots had come from. Where there were men, there would be food and shelter. Rainsford heard a sound. It came out of the darkness. A high, screaming sound. The sound of an animal in an extremity of anguish and terror. He continued to swim towards land. Ten minutes later, Rainsford pulled himself over some sharp rocks and onto the shore. He fell fast asleep, tired from the effort. When he opened his eyes, he knew from the position of the sun that it was late in the afternoon. Where there are pistol shots, there are men. Where there are men, 
There's food, he thought. But what kind of men, he wondered, in so forbidding a place? He saw no sign of a trail through the closely knit webs of weeds and trees. It was easier to go along the shore, and Rainsford floundered along by the water. Not far from where he landed, he stopped. Some wounded thing, by the evidence a large animal had thrashed about in the underbrush. The jungle weeds were crushed down and the moss was lacerated. One patch of weeds was stained crimson. A small glittering object not far away caught Rainsford's eye, and he picked it up. It was an empty cartridge. Twenty-two, he remarked. That's odd. Must have been a fairly large animal, too. The hunter had his nerve with him to tackle it with a light gun. It's clear that the brute put up a fight. Hmm. I suppose the first three shots I heard was when the hunter flushed his quarry and wounded it. The last shot was when he trailed it here and finished it. He examined the ground closely and found what he had hoped to find. A print of hunting boots. They pointed along the cliff in the direction he had been going. Bleak darkness was blacking out the sea and jungle when Rainsford sighted the lights. He came upon them as he turned a crook in the coastline, and his first thought was that he had come upon a village, for there were many lights. But, as he forged along, he saw to his great astonishment that all the lights were in one enormous building, a lofty structure with pointed towers plunging upward into the gloom. His eyes made out the shadowy outlines of a palatial chateau. It was set on a high bluff, and on three sides of it. He lifted the knocker and it creaked up stiffly, as if it had never before been used. He let it fall, and it startled him with its booming loudness. He thought he heard steps within. The door remained closed. Again, Rainsford lifted the heavy knocker and let it fall. The door opened then, opened as suddenly as if it were on a spring, and Rainsford stood blinking in the river of glaring gold light that poured out. The first thing Rainsford's eyes discerned was the largest man Rainsford had ever seen, a gigantic creature, solidly made and black-bearded to the waist. In his hand, the man held a long-barreled revolver, and he was pointing it straight at Rainsford's heart. Out of the snarl of beard, two small eyes regarded Rainsford. Don't be alarmed, said Rainsford, with a smile which he hoped was disarming. I'm no robber. I fell off a yacht. My name's Sanger Rainsford of New York City. The menacing look in the eyes did not change, the revolver pointing as rigidly as if the giant were a statue. He gave no sign that he understood Rainsford's words, or that he had ever heard them. He was dressed in uniform, a black uniform, trimmed with grey astrakhan. I'm Sanger Rainsford of New York, Rainsford began again. I fell off a yacht. I'm hungry. The man's only answer was to raise with his thumb the hammer of his revolver. Then, Rainsford saw the man's free hand go to his forehead in a military salute, and he saw him click his heels together and stand at attention. Another man was coming down the broad marble steps, an erect, slender man in evening clothes. He advanced to Rainsford and held out his hand. In a cultivated voice marked by a slight accent, 
he said. It is a very great pleasure and honor to welcome Mr. Sanger Rainsford, the celebrated hunter, to my home. Automatically, Rainsford shook the man's hand. I've read your book about hunting snow leopards in Tibet, you see, explained the man. I am General Zaroff. Rainsford's first impression was that the man was singularly handsome. His second was that there was an original, almost bizarre quality about the general's face. He was a tall man, past middle age, for his hair was a vivid white. But his thick eyebrows and pointed military mustache were as black as the night from which Rainsford had come. His eyes, too, were black and very bright. He had high cheekbones, a sharp-cut nose, a spare, dark face. The face of a man used to giving orders. The face of an aristocrat. Turning to the giant in uniform, the general made a sign. The giant put away his pistol, saluted, withdrew. Ivan is an incredibly strong fellow, remarked the general. But he has the misfortune to be deaf and dumb. A simple fellow. But I'm afraid, like all his race, a bit of a savage. Is he Russian? Oh, yes. He is a Cossack, said the general, and his smile showed red lips and pointed teeth. So am I. Come, he said. We shouldn't be chatting here. We can talk later. Now you want clothes, food, and rest. You shall have them. This is a most restful spot. Ivan had reappeared, and the general spoke to him with lips that moved but gave forth no sound. "'Follow Ivan, if you please, Mr. Rainsford,' said the general. "'I was about to have my dinner when you came. I'll wait for you. You will find that my clothes will fit you, I think.' It was to a huge beam-ceiling bedroom with a canopied bed big enough for six men that Rainsford followed the silent giant. Ivan laid out an evening suit, and Rainsford— as he put it on, noticed that it came from a London tailor who ordinarily cut and sewed for none below the rank of Duke. The dining room to which Ivan conducted him was in many ways remarkable. About the hall were mounted heads of many animals, lions, tigers, elephants, moose, bears, larger or more perfect specimens Rainsford had never seen. At the great table the general was sitting alone, You'll have a cocktail, Mr. Rainsford, he suggested. The cocktail was surpassingly good, and, Rainsford noted, the table appointments were of the finest. The linen, the crystal, the silver, the china. They were eating borscht, the rich red soup with whipped cream so dear to Russian palates. Half apologetically, General Zaroff said, we do our best to preserve the amenities of civilization here. Please forgive any lapses. We are well off the beaten track, you know. Do you think the champagne has suffered from its long ocean trip? Oh, not in the least, declared Rainsford. He was finding the general a most thoughtful and affable host, a true cosmopolitan. But there was one small trait of the general's that made Rainsford uncomfortable. Whenever he looked up from his plate, he found the general studying him, appraising him narrowly. Perhaps, Sir General Zaroff, you are surprised that I recognized your name. You see, 
I read all books on hunting published in English, French, and Russian. I have but one passion in my life, Mr. Rainsford, and it is the hunt. You have some wonderful heads here, said Rainsford as he ate a particularly well-cooked filet mignon. That Cape Buffalo is the largest I've ever seen. Oh, that fellow. Yes, he was a monster. Did he charge you? <laughs> Held me against a tree, said the general. Fractured my skull, but I got the brute. I've always thought, said Rainsford, that the Cape Buffalo is the most dangerous of all big game. For a moment, the general did not reply. He was smiling his curious red-lipped smile. Then he said slowly, No, you're wrong, sir. The Cape Buffalo is not the most dangerous big game, he sipped his wine. Here in my preserve on this island, he said in the same slow tone, I hunt more dangerous game. Rainsford expressed his surprise. Is there big game on this island? The general nodded. The biggest... Really? Oh, it isn't here naturally, of course. I have to stock the island. What have you imported, General? Rainsford asked. Tigers? The General smiled. No, he said. Hunting tigers ceased to interest me some years ago. I exhausted their possibilities, you see. No thrill left in tigers, no real danger. I live for danger, Mr. Rainsford. But... What game? began Rainsford. I'll tell you, said the general. You will be amused, I know. I think I may say, in all modesty, that I have done a rare thing. I have invented a new sensation. May I pour you another glass of port? Oh, yes, thank you, general. The general filled both glasses and said... God makes some men poets. Some he makes kings, some beggars. Me. He made a hunter. My hand was made for the trigger, my father said. He was a very rich man with a quarter of a million acres in the Crimea, and he was an ardent sportsman. When I was only five years old, he gave me a little gun, specially made in Moscow just for me to shoot sparrows with. When I shot some of his prized turkeys with it, he did not punish me. He complimented me on my marksmanship. I killed my first bear in the Caucasus when I was ten. I went into the army, but my real interest was always the hunt. I've hunted every kind of game in every land. It would be quite impossible for me to tell you how many animals I have killed. The general puffed at his cigarette. Naturally, I continue to hunt grizzly bears in your Rockies, crocodiles in the Ganges, rhinoceri in East Africa. It was in Africa that the Cape Buffalo hit me and laid me up for six months. As soon as I recovered, I started for the Amazon to hunt jaguars, for I had heard that they were unusually cunning. They were not. The Cossack sighed. There were no match at all for a hunter with his wits about him, and a high-powered rifle. I was bitterly disappointed. 
I was lying in my tent with a splitting headache one night when I began to think that hunting was beginning to bore me. And hunting, remember, had been my life. So, continued the general, I asked myself why the hunt no longer fascinated me. You are much younger than I am, Mr. Rainsford, and you have not hunted as much. But perhaps you can guess the answer. What is it? Simply this. Hunting had ceased to be what you call a sporting proposition. It had become too easy. I always got my quarry. Always. There is no greater bore than perfection. The general lit a fresh cigarette. No animal had a chance with me anymore. That is no boast. It is a mathematical certainty. The animal had nothing but his legs and his instinct. Instinct as no match for reason. When I thought of this, it was a tragic moment for me, I can tell you. Rainsford leaned across the table, absorbed in what his host was saying. It came to me as an inspiration what I must do, the general went on. And that was? The general smiled. I had to invent a new animal to hunt. A new animal? You're joking. Oh, not at all, said the general. I never joke about hunting. I needed a new animal. I found one. So... I bought this island, built this house, and here I do my hunting. The island is perfect for my purpose. There are jungles with a maze of trails in them, hills, swamps. But the animal, General Zaroff. Oh, said the general. It supplies me with the most exciting hunting in the world. No other hunting compares with it for an instant. Every day I hunt... And I never grow bored now, for I have a quarry with which I can match my wits. Rainsford's bewilderment showed in his face. I wanted the ideal animal to hunt, explained the general. So, I said, what are the attributes of an ideal quarry? And the answer was, of course, it must have courage, cunning, and above all, it must be able to reason. But no animal can reason, objected Rainsford. <laughs> My dear fellow, said the general, there is one that can. <laughs> but you can't mean, gasped Rainsford. And why not? I can't believe you're serious, General Zaroff. This is a grisly joke. Why should I not be serious? I am speaking of hunting. Hunting. Great guns, General Zoroff. What you speak of is murder. Laughter shook the general. <laughs> oh, how extraordinarily droll you are, he said. One does not expect nowadays to find a young man of the educated class, even in America, with such a naive and, if I may say so, mid-Victorian point of view. Ah, well... Doubtless you had Puritan ancestors, like so many Americans appear to have had. I'll wager you'll forget your notions when you go hunting with me. 
You have a genuine new thrill in store for you, Mr. Rainsford. Thank you, General, but I'm a hunter, not a murderer. Dear me, said the General, quite unruffled. Again that unpleasant word. But I think I can show you that your scruples are quite ill-founded. Yes? Life is for the strong. To be lived by the strong. And if needs be, taken by the strong. The weak of the world were put here to give the strong pleasure. I am strong. Why should I not use my gift? If I wish to hunt, why should I not? I hunt the scum of the earth. Sailors from tramp ships. Lascars, blacks, Chinese, whites, mongrels. A thoroughbred horse or hound is worth more than a score of them. But they are men, said Rainsford hotly. Precisely, said the general. That is why I use them. It gives me pleasure. They can reason after a fashion, so they are dangerous. But where do you get them? The general's left eyelid fluttered down in a wink. This island is called Ship Trap, he answered. Sometimes an angry god of the high sea sends them to me. Sometimes, when Providence is not so kind, I help Providence out a bit. Come to the window with me. Rainsford went to the window and looked out toward the sea. Watch. Out there, exclaimed the general, pointing into the night. Rainsford's eyes saw only blackness. And then, as the general pressed a button, far out to sea, Rainsford saw the flash of lights. The general chuckled. They indicate a channel, he said, where there is none. Giant rocks with razor edges crouch like a sea monster with wide open jaws. They can crush a ship as easily as I can crush this nut. He dropped a walnut of the hardwood floor and brought his heel, grinding down on it. And you shoot down men? A trace of anger was in the general's black eyes, but it was there for but a second. And he said, in his most pleasant manner, I assure you I do not do the thing you suggest. That would be barbarous. I treat these visitors with every consideration. They get plenty of good food and exercise. They get into splendid physical condition. You shall see for yourself tomorrow. It's a game, you see, perused the general blandly. I suggest to one of them that we go hunting. I give him a supply of food and an excellent hunting knife. I give him three hours' start. I am to follow, armed only with a pistol of the smallest caliber and range. If my quarry eludes me for three whole days, he wins the game. If I find him, the general smiled, he loses. Suppose he refuses to be hunted. Oh, said the general. I give him his option, of course. He need not play that game if he does not wish to. If he does not wish to hunt, I turn him over to Ivan. Invariably, Mr. Rainsford. Invariably. They choose the hunt. And if they win? The smile on the general's face widened. To date, I have not lost, he said. 
Then he added hastily, I don't wish you to think of me as a braggart, Mr. Rainsford. Many of them afford only the most elementary sort of problem. Occasionally, I use the dogs. The dogs? This way, please, I'll show you. The general steered Rainsford to a window. Rainsford could see moving about a dozen or so huge black shapes. As they turned toward him, their eyes glittered greenly. A rather good lot, I think, observed the general. They are let out at seven every night. If anyone should try to get into my house, or out of it, something extremely regrettable would occur to him. And now, said the general, I want to show you my new collection of heads. Will you come with me to the library? I hope, said Rainsford, that you will excuse me tonight, General Zaroff. I'm really not feeling well. Well, I suppose that's only natural after your long swim. You need a good, restful night's sleep. Tomorrow, you'll feel like a new man, I'll wager. Then we'll hunt, eh? I've one rather promising prospect. Rainsford was hurrying from the room. Sorry you can't go with me tonight, thought the general. Well, good night, Mr. Rainsford. I do hope you have a good night's rest. The bed was good, and the pajamas of the softest silk, and he was tired in every fiber of his being. But nevertheless... Rainsford could not quiet his brain with the opiate of sleep. He lay, eyes wide open. Once he thought he heard stealthy steps in the corridor outside his room. He sought to throw open the door. It would not open. He went to the window and looked down. His room was high up in one of the towers. Rainsford went back to the bed and lay down. By many methods he tried to put himself to sleep. He had achieved a doze when, just as morning began to come, he heard, far off in the jungle, the faint report of a pistol. General Zaroff did not appear until luncheon. General, Rainsford said firmly, I wish to leave this island at once. The general raised his thickets of eyebrows. He seemed hurt. But my dear fellow, the general protested, You've only just arrived. You've had no hunting. I wish to go today, said Rainsford. He saw the dead black eyes of the general on him, studying him. General Zaroff's face suddenly brightened. Tonight, said the general, we will hunt. You and I. Rainsford shook his head. No, general, he said. I will not hunt. The general shrugged his shoulders. As you wish, my friend, he said. The choice rests entirely with you. But may I venture to suggest that you will find my idea of sport more diverting than Ivan's? He nodded toward the corner to where the giant stood, scowling, his thick arms crossed on his hogshead of chest. You don't mean said Rainsford. My dear fellow, said the general, have I not told you I always mean what I say about hunting? 
This is really an inspiration. I drink to a foe worthy of my skill at last. The general raised a glass, but Rainsford sat staring at him. You'll find this game worth playing, the general said enthusiastically. Your brain against mine. Your skill against mine. Your strength and stamina against mine. Outdoor chess, and the stake is not without value, eh? And if I win, began Rainsford huskily, I will cheerfully acknowledge myself defeated if I do not find you by midnight of the third day, said General Zaroff. My boat will place you on the mainland near a town. The general read what Rainsford was thinking. Oh, you can trust me, said the Cossack. I will give you my word as a gentleman and a sportsman. Of course, in turn, you must agree to say nothing of your visit here. I'll agree to nothing of the kind, said Rainsford. Oh, said the general. In that case... But why discuss that now? Three days hence we can discuss it over a bottle of Vivu Clio. Unless... The general sipped his wine. Then a business-like air animated him. Ivan, he said to Rainsford, we'll supply you with hunting clothes, food, a knife. I suggest you wear moccasins, they do leave a poor trail. I suggest, too, that you avoid the big swamp in the southeast corner of the island. We call it Death Swamp. There is quicksand there. Well, I must beg you to excuse me now. I always take a siesta after lunch. You'll hardly have time for a nap, I fear. You'll want to start, no doubt. I shall not follow till dusk. Hunting at night is so much more exciting than by day, don't you think? Au revoir, Mr. Rainsford. Dos Vidonia. General Zaroff, with a deep, courtly bow, strolled from the room. From another door came Ivan... Under one arm, he carried khaki hunting clothes, a haversack of food, a leather sheath containing a long-bladed hunting knife. His right hand rested on a cocked revolver, thrust in the crimson sash about his waist. Rainsford had fought his way through the bush for two hours. I must keep my nerve. I must keep my nerve, he said through tight teeth. His whole idea at first was to put distance between himself and General Zaroff, and, to this end, he had plunged along, spurred by panic. Now he had got a grip on himself, had stopped, and was taking stock of himself and the situation. He saw that straight flight was futile. Inevitably, it would bring him face to face with the sea. I'll give him a trail to follow, muttered Rainsford. He executed a series of intricate loops. He doubled on his trail again and again, recalling all the lore of the fox hunt and all the dodges of the fox. Night found him leg-weary, with hands and face lashed by the branches on the thickly wooded ridge. He knew it would be insane to blunder on through the dark, even if he had the strength. His need for rest was imperative. A big tree with a thick trunk and outspread branches was nearby, and taking care to leave not the slightest mark. He climbed up into it, and stretched out on one of the broad limbs to rest. Even so zealous a hunter as General Zaroff could not trace him there, he told himself. Only the devil himself could follow that complicated trail through the jungle after dark. But perhaps... 
the general was a devil. Toward morning, when a dingy gray was varnishing the sky, the cry of some startled bird focused Rainsford's attention in that direction. Something was coming through the bush, coming slowly, carefully, coming by the same winding way Rainsford had come. He flattened himself down on the limb and, through a screen of leaves, almost as thick as tapestry, he watched. That which was approaching was a man. It was General Zaroff. He made his way along with his eyes fixed in utmost concentration on the ground before him. He paused, almost beneath the tree, dropped to his knees and studied the ground. Rainsford's impulse was to hurl himself down like a panther, but he saw that the general's right hand held something metallic, a small automatic pistol. The hunter shook his head several times as if he were puzzled. Then, he straightened up and took from his case one of his black cigarettes. Its pungent incense-like smoke floated up to Rainsford's nostrils. Rainsford held his breath. The general's eyes had left the ground and were traveling inch by inch up the tree. Rainsford froze there, every muscle tensed for a spring. But... The sharp eyes of the hunter stopped before they reached the limb where Rainsford lay. A smile spread over his brown face. Very deliberately, he blew a smoke ring into the air. Then, he turned his back on the tree and walked away, back along the trail he had come. The swish of the underbrush against his hunting boots grew fainter and fainter, the pent-up air burst hotly from Rainsford's lungs. His first thought made him feel sick and numb. The general could follow a trail through the woods at night. He could follow an extremely difficult trail. He must have uncanny powers. Only by the merest chance had the Cossack failed to see his quarry. Rainsford's second thought was even more terrible. It sent a shudder of cold horror through his whole being. Why had the general smiled? Why had he turned back? Rainsford did not want to believe what his reason told him was true, but the truth was as evident as the sun that had now pushed through the morning mists. The general was playing with him. The general was saving him for another day's sport. The Cossack was the cat. He was the mouse. Then it was that Rainsford knew the full meaning of terror. I will not lose my nerve. I will not. He slid down from the tree and struck off again into the woods. Three hundred yards from his hiding place, he stopped where a huge dead tree leaned precariously on a smaller living one. Rainsford took his knife from his sheath and began to work with all his energy. The job was finished at last and he threw himself down behind a fallen log a hundred feet away. He did not have to wait long. The cat was coming again to play with a mouse. Following the trail with the sureness of a bloodhound came General Zaroff. His gun gleamed in the sunlight. Nothing escaped those searching black eyes. No crushed blade of grass, no bent twig, no mark, no matter how faint in the moss. His foot touched the trigger of the trap that Rainsford had set. Even as he touched it, the general sensed the danger and leapt back with agility. 
but he was not quite quick enough. The dead tree, delicately adjusted to rest on the cut living one, crashed down and struck the general a glancing blow in the shoulder as it fell. He staggered, but he did not fall, nor did he drop his revolver. He stood there, rubbing his sore shoulder, and Rainsford, with fear again gripping his heart, heard the general's mocking laugh ring through the jungle. Rainsford, called the general, if you are within the sound of my voice, as I suppose you are, let me congratulate you. Not many men know how to make a Malay man catch a oh, bravo. Luckily for me, I too have hunted in Malacca. You are proving interesting, Mr. Rainsford. I am going now to have my wound dressed. It is only a slight one. But I shall be back. Oh, I shall be back. When the general had gone, Rainsford ran away like a madman. It was getting dark again. The ground became soft. He was in a part of the island that was jungle. He took a step forward. His foot sank into the mud. He pulled it out with great effort. Death Swamp and its quicksands. The softness of the earth had given him an idea. He stepped back from the quicksand a dozen feet or so and... Like some huge prehistoric beaver, he began to dig. The pit grew deeper. When it was above his shoulders, he climbed out and cut some stakes from hard saplings and sharpened them to a fine point. These stakes he planted at the bottom of the pit with the points sticking up. With flying fingers, he wove a rough carpet of weeds and branches, and with it he covered the mouth of the pit. Then, wet with sweat and aching with tiredness, he crouched behind the stump of a lightning-charred tree. He knew his pursuer was coming. He heard a new sound. Barking and sniffing. General Zaroff was using a dog to find him. Rainsford, crouching there, could not see the general, nor could he see the pit. He heard the sound of crashing and the sharp scream of pain as the pointed stakes found their mark. As he was about to leave his hiding spot, he heard a voice. "'You have done well, Mr. Rainsford,' the voice of the general called. "'Your Burmese tiger pit has claimed one of my best dogs. Again, you score. "'I think, Mr. Rainsford, I'll see what you can do against my whole pack. "'I'm going home for a rest now, Mr. Rainsford.' Thank you for a most amusing evening. At daybreak, Rainsford, lying near the swamp, was awakened by a sound that made him know that he had new things to learn about fear. It was a distant sound, faint and wavering, but he knew it. It was the baying of a pack of hounds. Rainsford knew he could do one of two things— he could stay where he was and wait. That was suicide. He could flee. That was postponing the inevitable. For a moment he stood there, thinking. An idea that held a wild chance came to him, and, tightening his belt, he headed away from the swamp. The baying of the hounds drew nearer, then still nearer. Nearer. Ever nearer.
On a ridge, Rainsford climbed a tree. Down a watercourse, not a quarter of a mile away, he could see the bush moving. Straining his eyes, he saw the lean figure of General Zaroff. Just ahead of him, Rainsford made out another figure whose wide shoulders surged through the tall jungle weeds. It was the giant, Ivan, and he seemed pulled forward by some unseen force. Rainsford knew that Ivan must be holding the pack in leash. They would be on him any minute now. His mind worked frantically. He thought of a native trick he had learned in Uganda. He slid down the tree. He caught hold of a springy young sapling, and to it he fastened his hunting knife. With the blade pointing down the trail, with a bit of wild grapevine, he tied back the sapling. Then, he ran for his life. The hounds raised their voices as they hit the fresh scent. Rainsford knew now how an animal at bay feels. He had to stop to get his breath. The baying of the hounds stopped abruptly and Rainsford's heart stopped too. They must have reached the knife. He climbed up a tree and looked back. His pursuers had stopped. But the hope that was in Rainsford's brain when he climbed died. For he saw in the shallow valley that General Zaroff was still on his feet. But Ivan was not. The knife, driven by the recoil of the springing tree, had not wholly failed. Rainsford was desperate. He was out of new ideas. Late that afternoon, as he was running along the cliff above the sea, he heard the barking of the hounds. He waited until he could see them. Forty feet below, he could also see the ocean waves crashing against the sharp rocks. There was only one chance. Anything was better than facing the general's dogs. He turned and leapt far out into the water. When the general reached the cliff, he was disappointed. Rainsford had chosen the coward's way out. For a few minutes, he watched the wild water. No one could live through that. He shrugged his shoulders. Then, he sat down, took out a drink of brandy from a silver flask, lit a cigarette, and hummed a bit from Madame Butterfly. Cheated out of his prize, he walked back to the house. General Zaroff had an exceedingly good dinner in his great paneled dining hall that evening. It was a shame that the famous American hunter had not played fair. But there would be other guests and other hunts. Better luck next time. At ten, he went up to his bedroom. He switched on the light. A man, who had been hiding in the curtains of the bed, was standing there. Rainsford, said the general. How in God's name did you get in here? Swam, said Rainsford. I found it quicker than walking through the jungle. The general sucked in his breath and smiled. I congratulate you, he said. You have won the game. You think I believe that you will really let me escape? Do you think I won't tell the police about this island in your games? Rainsford did not smile. I am still a beast at bay, he said in a low, hoarse voice. Get ready, General Zaroff. The general made one of his deepest bows. 
I see, he said. Splendid. One of us is to furnish a repast for the hounds. The other will sleep in this very excellent bed. On guard, Mr. Rainsford. He had never slept in a better bed, Rainsford decided. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. You've been listening to The Most Dangerous Game by author Richard Connell as performed by yours truly. Up next, I've got a third and final taste of the terrifying to share with you. This one, a roller coaster of emotions from English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, first published in 1798. In it, we'll meet a sailor who has returned from a long voyage, who insists on telling his tale to a passing gentleman that's on his way to a wedding and will discover why the story has him first intrigued, then impatient, and finally, afraid. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's second sponsor, BetterHelp, the company dedicated to making professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. The tales I tell you on the Horror Hill are, of course, fictional, and in tonight's case, antiquated. And if you're like me, there are much-needed respite from the waking nightmares that sometimes plague our real modern lives. Tales about nightmarish nature half a world away, or human-hunting sociopaths on a faraway island are one thing. But what about the more mundane things we deal with in our lives, such as relationship woes, the loss of our jobs, financial concerns and mental health emergencies. If there's something interfering with your happiness, or that's preventing you from achieving your goals, you're not alone. We've all been there. I know I have. And we don't always have access to the help we need, whatever the reasons may be. I started college about a year after I lost my father, and it was a little too soon, and maybe a little too far from home, it was easily the loneliest and most isolating year of my life, and if there ever was a time I could have used a service like BetterHelp, it was then, and I certainly would have. 
Instead, I essentially lost a year of my life and education to grief and depression, and I resolved that from then on I would never suffer silently again. As part of that process, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide, so no matter what corner of the earth you find yourself in, you can get the help you need anytime. Not to mention they offer a broad range of expertise, whereas in many areas, that sort of assistance just isn't available locally. With BetterHelp, you can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Not only that, but it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Need proof? Visit their website and read from their list of testimonials. New ones are added daily. And join the thousands who have changed their lives with the help of BetterHelp's counselors. Take this for example, from an April 18, 2020 review. BetterHelp user TA came to BetterHelp and counselor Alyssa Ashenfarb suffering from issues we're all familiar with, including depression, stress, anxiety, relationship issues, family conflicts, trauma and abuse, grief, intimacy-related issues, and self-esteem. After working together for just a couple of weeks, T.A. says, I look forward to every session with Alyssa. She's extremely kind and considerate and is encouraging in my progress. She's a phenomenal listener and gives suggestions that are truly helpful. I really respect her and am grateful for the progress I am already starting to make with her. What more can you ask for? Or take K.A.'s testimony, for example. After counseling with Betty Asierno for one month on issues concerning stress, anxiety, self-esteem, and coping with life changes, they said, counseling sessions with Betty are like having a friend sitting on the front porch sipping a mint julep or tea and talking about uncomfortable topics in a comforting way. Then, getting busy digging the weeds out of the flower bed of my life. In the darkest of times, it's not always easy to find a friend you can truly open up to, and that's why there's better help. And this month, listeners of the Horror Hill podcast will get 10% off their first month. To get started, visit betterhelp.com hill. That's betterhelp.com slash hill to get 10% off your first month of counseling. Enjoy the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Be sure to use that URL to let our sponsors know that I sent you. Thanks so much for listening, and for giving BetterHelp a try this month. Your support means a lot to both of us. We all deserve to be happy, and I'd love nothing more than to hear that our sponsors have helped make a difference in your life.
Now that I've helped you get the support you need, courtesy of our friends at BetterHelp, allow me to regale you with the third and final terrifying tale, which takes the form of a poem. But don't let its seemingly flowery format fool you. This is no fairy tale. Without further ado, from poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, I present to you The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Argument How a ship, having passed the line, was driven by storms to the cold country towards the South Pole, and how from thence she made her course to the tropical latitude of the great Pacific Ocean, and of the strange things that befell, and in what manner the ancient mariner came back to his own country. For John Terence Hill I miss you, Dad. Part 1 It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three, by thy long grey beard and glittering eye. Now wherefore stoppest thou me? The bridegroom's doors are open wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are met, the feast is set, mayest hear the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand, there was a ship, quoth he. Hold off, unhand me, grey-haired loon. Eftsoons his hand dropped he. He holds him with his glittering eye. The wedding guest stood still, and listens like a three years child. The mariner hath his will. The wedding guest sat on a stone. He cannot choose but hear. And thus spake on that ancient man, that bright-eyed mariner. The ship was cheered, the harbor cleared, merrily did we drop. Below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. The sun came up upon the left, out of the sea came he, and he shone bright, and on the right went down into the sea. Higher and higher every day till over the mast at noon, the wedding guest here beat his breast, for he heard the loud bassoon. The bride hath paced into the hall, red as a rose is she, nodding their heads before her goes that merry minstrelsy. The wedding guest he beat his breast, yet he cannot choose but hear, and thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. And now the storm-blast came, and he was tyrannous and strong. He struck with his overtaking wings and chased us south along, with sloping masts and dipping prow, as who pursued with yell and blow, still treads the shadow of his foe, and forward bends his head. The ship drove fast, loud roared the blast, and southward aye we fled. And now there came both mist and snow, and it grew wondrous cold, and ice, mast high, came floating by, as green as emerald. And through the drifts the snowy cliffs did send a dismal sheen. Nor shapes of men nor beasts we ken. The ice was all between. The ice was here. The ice was there. The ice was all around. It cracked and growled and roared and howled. Like noises in a sound. 
At length did cross an albatross, through the fog it came. As if it been a Christian soul, we hailed it in God's name. It ate the food it near had eat, and round and round it flew. The ice did split with a thunder fit, the helmsman steered us through. And a good south wind sprung up behind, the albatross did follow. And every day for food or play came the mariner's hollow. In mist or cloud, on mast or shroud, it perched for vespers nine, while all the night, through fog smoke white, glimmered the white moonshine. God save thee, ancient mariner, from the fiends that plague thee thus. Why lookest thou so with my crossbow? I shot the albatross. Part 2 the sun now rose upon the right, out of the sea came he, still hid in mist, and on the left went down into the sea. And the good south wind still blew behind, but no sweet bird did follow, nor any day for food or play came to the mariner's hollow. And I had done a hellish thing, and it would work them woe, for all averred I had killed the bird that made the breeze to blow. I wretch, said they, the bird to slay, that made the breeze to blow. Nor dim, nor red, like God's own head, the glorious sun uprist. Then all averred I'd killed the bird that brought the fog and mist. T'was right, said they, such birds to slay, that bring the fog and mist. The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow followed free. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. Down dropped the breeze, the sails dropped down. T'was sad as sad could be, and we did speak only to break the silence of the sea. All in a hot and copper sky, the bloody sun at noon, right up above the mast did stand no bigger than the moon. Day after day, Day after day, we stuck, nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. The very deep did rot, oh Christ, that ever this should be. Ye slimy things did crawl with legs. Upon the slimy sea. About, about, in reel and rout, The death fires danced at night. The water, like a witch's oils, Burnt green and blue and white. And some, in dreams assured, Were of the spirit that plagued us so. Nine fathom deep he had followed us From that land of mist and snow. And every tongue, through every draught, Was withered at the root. We could not speak, no more than if we'd been choked with soot. Ah, well a day, what evil looks had I from old and young. Instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. Part 3 There passed a weary time, each throat was parched and glazed each eye. A weary time, a weary time! How blazed each weary eye, when looking westward I beheld a something in the sky, 
At first it seemed a little speck, and then it seemed a mist. It moved and moved and took at last a certain shape I wist. A speck, a mist, a shape I wist, and still it neared and neared, as if it dodged a water sprite. It plunged and tacked and veered. With throats unslaked, with black lips baked, we could nor laugh nor wail. Through utter drought, all dumb we stood. I bit my arm, I sucked the blood, and cried, A sail! A sail! With throats unslaked, with black lips baked, agape they heard me call. Gramercy! They for joy did grin, and all at once their breath drew in as they were drinking all. See! See! I cried. She tacks no more! Heather to work us wheel without a breeze, without a tide. She steadies with upright keel. The western wave was all aflame. The day was well nigh done. Almost upon the western wave rested the broad, bright sun, when the strange ship drove suddenly betwixt us and the sun. And straight the sun was flecked with bars. Heaven's mother send us grace. As if through a dungeon grate he peered, the broad and burning face. Alas, thought I, my heart beat loud, how fast she nears and nears. Are those her sails that glance in the sun, like restless gossamers? Are those her ribs through which the sun did peer as through a grate? And is the woman all her crew? Is that a death? And are there two? Is death that woman's mate? Her lips were red, her hooks were free. Her locks were yellow as gold. Her skin was as white as leprosy. The nightmare life and death was she who thicks man's blood with cold. The naked hulk alongside came, the twain were casting dice. The game is done, I've won, I've won, quoth she, and whistles thrice. The sun's rim dips, the stars rush out, at one stride comes the dark. With far-heard whisper o'er the sea, off shot the specter bark. We listened and looked sideways up, fear at my heart is at a cup, my lifeblood seemed to sip. The stars were dim, and thick the night. The steersman's face by his lamp gleamed white, from the sails the drew did drip. Till clomb above the eastern bar, the horned moon with one bright star within the nether tip. One after one by the star-dogged moon, too quick for groan or sigh, each turned his face with a ghastly pang, and cursed me with his eye. Four times fifty living men, and I heard nor sigh nor groan. With heavy thump, a lifeless lump, they dropped down one by one. The souls did from their bodies fly, they fled to bliss or woe, and every soul... It passed me by, like the whiz of my crossbow. I fear thee, ancient mariner, I fear thy skinny hand, and thou art long and lank and brown, as is the ribbed sea sand. I fear thee, and thy glittering eye, and thy skinny hand so brown. Fear not, fear not, thou'st wedding guest, this body dropped not down, alone, Alone and all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea. And never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. The many men, 
so beautiful, and they all dead did lie, and a thousand thousand slimy things lived on, and so did I. I looked upon the rotting sea and drew my eyes away. I looked upon the rotting deck, and there the dead men lay. I looked to heaven and tried to pray, but or ever a prayer had gushed. A wicked whisper came and made my heart as dry as dust. I closed my lids and kept them close, and the balls like pulses beat, for the sky and the sea and the sea and the sky lay dead like a load on my weary eye, and the dead were at my feet. The cold sweat melted from their limbs, nor rot nor reek did they. The look with which they looked on me had never passed away. An orphan's curse would drag to hell a spirit from on high, but oh, more horrible than that is the curse in a dead man's eye. Seven days, seven nights I saw that curse, and yet I could not die. The moving moon went up the sky and nowhere did abide. Softly she was going up, and a star or two beside. Her beams bemocked the sultry main, like April hoarfrost spread, but where the ship's huge shadow lay, the charmed water burnt alway, still and awful red. Beyond the shadow of the ship I watched the water snakes. They moved in tracks of shining white, and when they reared the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. Within the shadow of the ship I watched their rich attire, Blue, glossy green, and velvet black, they coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire. Oh, happy living things, no tongue, their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them unaware. Sure, my kind saint took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. The selfsame moment I could pray, and from my neck so free... The albatross fell off and sank, like lead, into the sea. Part 5 Oh, sleep, it is a gentle thing, beloved from pole to pole. To Mary Queen the praise be given, she sent the gentle sleep from heaven that slid into my soul. The silly buckets on the deck that had so long remained... I dreamt that they were filled with dew, and when I awoke, it rained. My lips were wet, my throat was cold, my garments all were dank. Sure I had drunken in my dreams, and still my body drank. I moved and could not feel my limbs, I was so light almost, I thought that I had died in sleep, and was a blessed ghost. And soon I heard a roaring wind I did not come anear, but with its sounds it shook the sails that were so thin and sear. The upper air burst into life, and a hundred fire flags sheen. To and fro they were hurried about, and to and fro and in and out the wan stars danced between. And the coming wind did roar more loud, and the sails did sigh like sedge, and the rain poured down from one black cloud. The moon was at its edge. 
The thick black cloud was cleft and still the moon was at its side. Like water shot from some high crag, the lightning fell with never a jag, a river steep and wide. The loud wind never reached the ship, yet now the ship moved on. Beneath the lightning and the moon, the dead men gave a groan. They groaned, they stirred, they all uprose nor spake nor moved their eyes. It had been strange, even in a dream, to have seen those dead men rise. The helmsman steered, the ship moved on, yet never a breeze up blew. The mariners all gan work the ropes where they were wont to do. They raised their limbs like lifeless tools, we were a ghastly crew. The body of my brother's son stood by me knee to knee. The body and I pulled at one rope, and he said naught to me. I fear thee, ancient mariner. Be calm, thou wedding guest. Twas not those souls that fled in pain which to their course came again, but a troop of spirits blessed. For when it dawned, they dropped their arms and clustered round the mast. Sweet sounds rose slowly through their mouths and from their bodies passed. Around, around flew each sweet sound, then darted to the sun. Slowly the sound came back again, now mixed, now one by one. Sometimes a dropping from the sky I heard the skylark sing. Sometimes all little birds that are how they seem to fill the sea and air with their sweet jargoning. And now, twas like all instruments, now like a lonely flute. And now it is an angel's song that makes the heavens be mute. It ceased, yet still the sails made on, a pleasant noise till noon. A noise like of a hidden brook in the leafy month of June, that to the sleeping woods all night singeth a quiet tune. Till noon we quietly sailed on, yet never a breeze did breathe. Slowly and smoothly went the ship, moved onward from beneath. Under the keel nine fathom deep from the land of mist and snow, the spirit slid, and it was he that made the ship to go. The sails at noon left off their tune, and the ship stood still also. The sun, right above the mast, and fixed her to the ocean, gan stir with a short uneasy motion, backwards and forwards half her length with a short, uneasy motion. Then, like a palling horse let go, she made a sudden bound. It flung the blood into my head, and I fell down in a swound. How long, in that same fit I lay, I have not to declare. But ere my living life returned, I heard and in my soul discerned two voices in the air. Is it he? quoth one. Is this the man? By him who died on cross, with his cruel bow he laid full low the harmless albatross. The spirit who biddeth by himself in the land of mist and snow, he loved the bird that loved the man who shot him with his bow. The other was a softer voice, as soft as honeydew. Quoth he, the man hath penance done, and penance more will do. Part 6 
But tell me, tell me, speak again, thy soft response renewing. What makes that ship drive on so fast? What is the ocean doing? Still as a slave before his lord, the ocean hath no blast. His great bright eye most silently up to the moon is cast. If he may know which way to go, for she guides him smooth or grim. See, brother, see, how graciously she looketh down on him. But why drives on that ship so fast, without or wave or wind? The air is cut away before, and closes from behind. Fly, brother, fly, more high, more high, or we shall be belated. For slow and slow that ship will go when the mariner's trance is abated. I woke, and we were sailing on, as in gentle weather. T'was night, calm night, the moon was high, the dead men stood together. All stood together on the deck, for a charnel dungeon fitter. All fixed on me their stony eyes, that in the moon did glitter. The pang, the curse, with which they died had never passed away. I could not draw my eyes from theirs, nor turn them up to pray. And now the spell was snapped once more, I viewed the ocean green, and looked far forth, yet little saw of what had else been seen. Like one that on a lonesome road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round walks on, and turns no more his head. Because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. But soon there breathed a wind on me, nor sound nor motion made. Its path was not upon the sea, in ripple or in shade. It raised my hair, it fanned my cheek like a meadow gale of spring. It mingled strangely with my fears, yet it felt like a welcoming. Swiftly, swiftly flew the ship. Yet she sailed softly too. Sweetly, sweetly blew the breeze. On me alone it blew. Oh, dream of joy, is this indeed the lighthouse top I see? Is this the hill? Is this the kirk? Is this mine own country? We drifted o'er the harbor bar, and I with sobs did pray. Oh, let me be awake, my God. Or let me sleep always. The harbor bay was clear as glass, so smoothly it was strewn. And on the bay the moonlight lay, and the shadow of the moon. The rock shone bright, the kirk no less that stands above the rock. The moonlight steeped in silentness, the steady weathercock. And the bay was white with silent light, till rising from the same. Full many ships that shadows were, in crimson colors came. A little distance from the prow those crimson shadows were. I turned my eyes upon the deck. Oh Christ, what I saw there. Each course lay flat, lifeless and flat, and by the holy rood. A man or light, a seraphman, on every course there stood. This seraph band each waved his hand, it was a heavenly sight. They stood at signals to the land, each one a lovely light. This seraph band each waved his hand, no voice did they impart. No voice, but oh, the silence sank, like music on my heart. But soon I heard the dash of oars, I heard the pilot's cheer. 
My head was turned perforce away, and I saw the boat appear. The pilot and the pilot's boy, I heard them coming fast. Dear Lord in heaven, it was a joy. The dead men could not blast. I saw a third. I heard his voice. It is the hermit good. He singeth loudly his godly hymns that he makes in the wood. He'll shrieve my soul. He'll wash away the albatross's blood. Part 7 This hermit good lives in that wood which slopes down to the sea. How loudly his sweet voice rears, he loves to talk with mariners that come from a far country. He kneels at morn and noon and eve, he hath a cushion plump. It is the moss that wholly hides the rotted old oak stump. The skiff boat neared, I heard them talk. Why, this is strange, I trow. Where are those lights so many and fair that signal made but now? Strange by my faith, the hermit said. And they answered not our cheer. The planks look warped, and see those sails, how thin they are and sear. I never saw aught like to them, unless perchance it were, brown skeletons of leaves that lag, my forest broke along, when the ivy tod is heavy with snow, and the owlet whoops to the wolf below that eats the she-wolf's young. Dear Lord, it hath a fiendish look, the pilot made reply. I am afeard. Push on, push on, said the hermit cheerily. The boat came closer to the ship, but I nor spake nor stirred. The boat came close beneath the ship, and straight a sound was heard. Under the water it rumbled on, still louder and more dread. It reached the ship. It split the bay. The ship went down like lead. Stunned by that loud and dreadful sound which sky and ocean smote, like one that hath been seven days drowned, my body lay afloat. But swift as dreams, myself I found within the pilot's boat. Upon the whirl where sank the ship, the boat spun round and round. And all was still, save that the hill was telling of the sound. I moved my lips, the pilot shrieked, and fell down in a fit. The holy hermit raised his eyes and prayed where he did sit. I took the oars, the pilot's boy, who now doth crazy go, laughed long and loud, and all the while his eyes went to and fro. Ha <laughs> ha, quoth he, full plain I see, the devil knows how to row. And now, all in my own country, I stood on the firm land. The hermit stepped forth from the boat, and scarcely he could stand. Oh, shrieve me, shrieve me, holy man! The hermit crossed his brow. Say quick, quoth he, I bid thee say, what manner of man art thou? Forthwith his frame of mine was wrenched with a woeful agony, which forced me to begin my tale, and then it left me free. Since then, at an uncertain hour, that agony returns, until my ghastly tale is told, this heart within me burns. I pass like night from land to land, I have strange power of speech. That moment that his face I see, I know the man that must hear me, to him my tale I teach. What loud uproar bursts from that door, the wedding guests are there. But in the garden bower the bride and bridesmaids singing are, and hark the little vesper bell, 
which biddeth me to prayer. O oh, wedding guest, this soul hath been alone on a wide, wide sea. So lonely t'was that God himself scarce seemed there to be. O oh, sweeter than the marriage feast, tis sweeter far to me to walk together to the kirk with a goodly company. To walk together to the kirk and all together pray while each to his great father bends, old men and babes and loving friends, and youths and maidens gay. Farewell, farewell, but this I tell, to see thou wedding guest. He prayeth well, he loveth well, both man and bird and beast. He prayeth best who loveth best, all things both great and small. For the dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all. The mariner, whose eye is bright, whose beard with age is hoar, is gone, and now the wedding guests turn from the bridegroom's door. He went like one that hath been stunned and is of sense forlorn, a sadder and a wiser man. He rose the morrow morn. You've been listening to The Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge as performed by yours truly. Well, listener, after tonight's bevy of tales, I think it's safe to say I won't be setting foot in a boat or an island or, well, near any body of water for that matter, for a long, long time. I'll stay here on land, thank you very much. Or at least I can hear the footsteps of whatever's out to get me. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Horror Hill. Don't forget to tune in again next week, when I yet again regale you with a handful of tales to terrify, plumbed from the most depraved depths of the human imagination. Tonight's episode featured tales from authors Gertrude Atherton, Richard Connell, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. May they all rest in peace. To learn more about these revered authors from yesteryear, simply search for them by name online and dive into their collections on public domain tales, available for your entertainment free of charge. Their tales may, in some cases, be over a century old, but as I hope I've proven tonight, some things just get better with age. I for one hope these tales live forever, and thank you for listening to my performances of them here tonight. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference. It would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. 
If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsors, Best Fiends and BetterHelp, for their support of this show. As a reminder, listeners of the Horror Hill podcast will get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp. To get started, visit BetterHelp.com hill. That's BetterHelp.com hill to get 10% off your first month of counseling. Be sure to use that URL to let them know that Jason and the Horror Hill podcast sent you. Your support means a lot to me. And don't forget to download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show. And that means a lot to me. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with darkness. I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. <laughs> the darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda, Luke Hodgkinson, and Jesse Cornett. Final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshak. The program's artwork by yours truly, Jason Hill. Logo by Craig Groshak. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com 
and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.